0: Welcome, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This morning, I have the pleasure of talking to my dear friend, Dr. Jessica gordon Nimhard, who wrote the book, Collective Courage, A History of African-Americans' Cooperative Economic Thought and Practices. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. Thanks for taking out of your busy, busy schedule to come on to talk. This is Women's History Month, and the theme this year is Providing Healing and Hope. So I want to talk about mainly African-American women and the hope that African-American women have provided and the healing, particularly through the cooperative movement. And you talk about history in your book, African-American Cooperatives. So have black women provided healing and hope, African-American women?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. You know, one of the things I learned when I started to do this research about the African-American cooperative movement was how integral black women have been to the movement. And partly it's because of how integral they are and were in the mutual aid movement. And the mutual aid, right, mutual aid is all about healing and wellness, right? They started out, the very first mutual aid associations were burial, Sickness and health care, widow and orphan, right? It's all about people pooling their meager resources, working together to make sure that they can, you know, physically survive, mentally survive, culturally survive, and economically survive. And the thing that's so fascinating about even just the mutual aid movement is how much in the black mutual aid movement women predominated at the height of the movement in the 1800s you know like 60 to 80 percent of women black women were members of mutual aid associations and at least 60 to 80 percent of those associations were started by black women so we have this whole history of black women really providing that you know making sure to figure out collective ways to provide that nurturance and support that everybody needs in a community
0: What is mutual aid society? What's the definition of a mutual aid society?
1: Mutual aid societies are organizations of people who
0: pool
1: their resources in order to address a need that they can't address as individually. So with the widow and orphans or even the burial societies or especially the health programs, they're kind of what we call insurance now, except insurance companies now are usually for profit. You know, you pay an insurance company to hold some money for you. And then, you know, if you need it, sometimes your insurance company will give it back to you. Well, mutual aid was much more direct and informal, right? You had what some people call lady bankers or whatever who would hold the money the pooled money everybody put in a certain amount 10 cents a month or a dollar a year or whatever it was in those days now obviously it would be a lot more money and then from that pool of money whoever needs it to bury their dead or to go to the hospital or to go see a doctor they can uh, get something out of that pooled money and so it's it's a way for everybody to collectively create a pot of savings that then anybody who needs it can reasonably expect to use it for their emergencies.
0: So these started, I know they were doing slavery. Yeah. Do you have any sense of when they started or how they got started?
1: You know, my understanding is that they're one of those things that all human beings have done and used, right? There's all different ways to talk about mutual aid from, you know, collective hunting and the hunting and gathering and gathering in the early right civilizations. But I think in terms of formalization, the first ones, I know about in the black community were in the 1700s. Actually, the, one of the very first black mutual aid associations was the Free Africa Association in Philadelphia that then created the AME Church. So that was, wow. what, 1740s or something.
0: So it sounds like mutual aid societies and co-ops are, have a similar base, providing the resources oh, pitching in to solve right. a need. So,
1: you know, We often talk about mutual aid being the precursor to co-ops, especially, as I said, in the black community. That's what I found. And then I found people, especially women, who spanned, right? We have some women who are very highly in mutual aid, like Lena Helen Walker with the Independent Order of St. Luke, like Callie House with the Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association, which was our first reparations organization. But that was a mutual aid association. In fact, the mutual aid association part of it lasted like 30 years, whereas the um, reparations part of it, the demand for back wages and pensions for ex-slaves actually only lasted about 10 years because she got targeted by the federal government and put out, that part was put out of business. But the mutual aid association part of that organization kept going. And then we know some people like Helena Wilson with the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, she was actually in a mutual aid association before she started to organize the ladies' auxiliary to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which then started organizing consumer education, co-op development, credit union development, buying clubs, etc. So we have, we have some knowledge that some women actually kind of cut their teeth, learned about pooling resources and collective economics and mutual aid societies, and then took, took that experience with them
0: to help start create actual co-op. Phenomenal, phenomenal. I did not like history when I was in school. Matter of fact, I hated it because all they talked about was dates and people, and they were mainly white people. But all of the women that you're talking about now, I didn't hear about until I started reading your book and talking to you. So this is phenomenal to me. Now I have a deep love for history, particularly as it relates to what did we learn that we can use today, and we'll get more into that. So you talked about uh, Collie House and Helena Wilson. What are some other women that your research has brought up to you that have been about either mutual aid or co-ops, particularly in relationship to providing healing and hope?
1: Right. Well, you know, you can't talk about black women and co-ops without talking about Ella Joe Baker, who was the director of the Young Negroes Cooperative League during the Great Depression, right? They weren't as much focused on health care, but they were focused on hope. And healing in terms of they felt that young black people needed to learn about cooperative economics and start co-ops as a way to bring hope, prosperity and stronger community development for black communities. And so they started a national organization, she and a guy named George Schuyler, who is a columnist a newspaper person, and a columnist, and they started the organization in order to spread the word that co-ops really are the economic structure that Blacks should be using if they want to support the entire community and really make lasting change. So that's one side of Black women's leadership. Another side would be somebody like Fannie Lou Hamer, who first, you know, was a voting rights activist and a SNCC member, but then realized that Voting wasn't enough, right? People were still poor. People were stopped from voting because they were poor and and didn't own their own land and didn't produce their own food. She was a sharecropper, and she and her husband were evicted from their farm because they registered to vote. And so she was reacting. She came to co-ops from that perspective, that civil rights weren't enough. We really needed economic justice. And the best way to get economic justice was through cooperatives. An economic democracy. We needed to own our own land collectively. We needed to produce our own food. She also did affordable housing, childcare, and some worker co-ops to do childcare and things like that. And her notion was, until we were really economically self-sufficient and couldn't be retaliated against, we would never make lasting change in the civil rights side. So that's a Fannie Lou Hamer. We've got the women who started uh, cooperative home care associates, Peggy Armstrong and others in the 80s, right? That's where they realized this is real health and healing, right? That home care work was so precarious and underpaid and underappreciated that the best way to elevate home care and low-skilled health care would be to make it a worker cooperative. And that way, the health care providers would own and control their own businesses, be able to get living wages, raise the quality of the kinds of work they were giving so that then people who needed home care would get high quality work at the same time that people who were giving it would have high quality jobs. So those are some of the examples. Her name was Peggy. Peggy Armstrong was one of the co-founders, a black woman. Um, and that co op has been predominantly uh black and Latinx Latinas, um, but also a few men. Um and it's actually the largest worker co op in the United States. Not not the largest black worker co op, the largest worker co op in the United States. And Is that it's about, out of New York twenty five years, yes, in South Bronx. I think it's about let's see, it started in nineteen eighty seven. So what does that make it? 30, over
0: 30 years now, and there are other models. 30, 35. Throughout. But be, be, 30 before you go years. off of off of her, because I've had um, that organization, the executive director on, and one of the other things besides educating the workers, the fifth principle of cooperation is education, but educating the workers on how to provide better services, uh, they end up uh, helping each other by creating their schedules that help them with their family. But they also learn how to fight for, uh, politicize for higher wages. And they've done that at the local and state level. Now they are doing it with the federal level to get, uh, Medicare and Medicaid to pay higher wages, uh, for those yes. workers. And that would benefit all healthcare workers. Absolutely. A, and that's, yeah, okay.
1: that's part of the legacy of all these co-ops right is that connection between right the minute you dignify work better give people more control over work pay people higher wages it's an example of how we can live and how we can do this better but it also usually impacts the industry that you're in
0: impacts the industry impacts the workers impacts the clients because they get better care phenomenal mm-hmm. and uh, to, to me one of the things You had said about one of these ladies uh, that they did not necessarily work in the healthcare field, but any time you give somebody more money, better friends, benefits, more dignity and self-worth, you automatically increase health, both mental and physical health, mental, emotional, physical, all the way around.
1: Absolutely. Yes.
0: And so you're one of those women that have been doing this work, too. Don't forget... (laughs) <laughs> Jessica Gordon Lhart. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Yes, you're right. I've been in this I don't know, I think that's like twenty years, twenty five years now myself. Yeah.
0: So we're gonna take our first break and we're gonna talk about come back and talk about other women and um other benefits of cooperation, mutual aid, societies. It is wonderful talking about Fanny Lou Hamer. She's become a heroine of mine, like Shirley Sherrard and you. Jessica, we'll be right back. Please don't touch that now. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Dr. Jessica Gordon-Emhardt as our guest this morning, and I said right before we went off that Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Shirley Sherrod, Dr. Jessica Gordon-Emhardt, and I just wanted to make sure I put my mother in there, our, our, my heroines. we got a lot of black women that have been out here in the struggle, both at the family level and at the community level, uh, helping, providing healing and hope. And so... You talked about Fannie Lou Hama, Ella Jo Baker, Cowley House, Helena Wilson, Peggy Armstrong. Who are some other women that have been in this field?
1: So another one to talk about, and I know you've had people talk about her on your show too, would be Estelle Witherspoon, again from the 60s, uh, one of the co-founders of Freedom Quilting Bee, which is also one of the founding co-ops of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives Land Assistance Fund. Estelle Witherspoon was also a sharecropper, so like Fannie Lou Hamer, right, a sharecropper, trying to make ends meet, trying to help her family get out of that eternal debt peonage that they're in as sharecroppers. Um, and she worked with other women, and I think a minister helped them to realize they could sell their quilts, and so they created a, a quilting co-op to do that. You know, some of the fascinating things about what they were able to accomplish was not just, right, to get quilting on the map and to sell them all over the country, right? Not just to start their own uh, company and start it, you know, run it and start it as a cooperative, but also all the things that come with creating that level of independence, especially for black women. Right, They made enough money so they could buy 23 acres of land. This is sharecropping people right, who were in debt peonage, but now their co-op owns 23 acres of land. So they also, many of them, got thrown off their properties for registering to vote. Now the co-op had some land to either lease to, share, to former sharecroppers or even they sold a few of their lots to, to former sharecroppers. So they're, they're then helping the whole community to prosper. Also, now that they have land, they built a a factory so they could not do their quilts at home, but that meant they needed to do something with their children, so they also have a child care program, an after-school program, a summer program for the kids. So, again, you can see this whole ecosystem, right? Once women start to cooperate and do things, a whole ecosystem of support and community development happens that's just really unparalleled when you think about other kinds of models
0: and what other people are able to accomplish. So by pulling your resources, whether that's money or time or talent, by pulling those resources, getting the education you need, then you can start solving the problems, whatever they are yes. and however they show up, together. Okay. Absolutely. So how important is this education that, in, that you found out in your research?
1: <laughs> I don't know. You might be tired. I think people might get tired of hearing me say this, but in addition I to realizing life- <laughs> I won't. And learning how important black women were to the black co-op movement. The other equally important thing and thing that I didn't realize until I started putting it all together was how important education was. Education was really the foundation for the black co-op movement in terms of most of the uh, co-ops that I learned about how they started. And most of the black co-op organizations all started with study groups, right? People coming together to study their problems and then to study cooperative economics as a solution. Some of the co-ops didn't even open their doors or, you know, or start at all until after months of study. Some of the groups went and studied other black co-ops and other co-ops in the U.S. So they actually traveled to meet with other cooperators who had already done what they were trying to do and to learn from that. So there was all that kind of, Study learning journeys and mutual learning, learning from each other. That some of the co-ops started actual courses in high schools and community colleges to make sure that people learned. Some of the co-ops actually started from Black independent schools that also added a component of teaching about co-ops. Or you have a Nanny Helen Burrows, who first was worried about uh, Black women's education, women and girls' education, started a training school, and then. In the basement of that training school, she started a woman's worker cooperative and combined, again, the education and industrial training and whatever with cooperative economics and worker co-ops, that kind of thing. So you can't we can't underestimate. We can't not talk about education when we talk about the black co-op movement and African-American
0: cooperatives. So uh, you are a professor. So you are a teacher. I have taught. Eleven years in my career, and I, well, eleven years formal, but I seem like teaching is what I do, what I love doing. My mother was a school teacher, and I taught a couple years Department of Education teaching adults. And what I love about adult education is giving them just in time education. They, are, they 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 take it, they absorb it, they get it, they want it because they can use it and they can see how they use it. It is not theory in a book or something. And so that's how I can see this education, and Fannie Lou Hamer only had an eighth-grade formal education. But she got all of this other education, and she had passion and able to speak, well, even with that Southern drawl to get everybody's attention, just phenomenal. Yeah. So you talking about going and looking at other co-ops. Shirley Sherrod, uh, they took a group, I think in the 60s, to Israel to study land mm-hmm.
1: trucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah
0: and started the New Communities Land Trust, which he had 6,000 acres, which got stolen from them. But yep. that's a whole other story for another time. Yeah. So black independent schools, and uh, Nanny Helen Burrows is right here in D.C., and that's where I am right now. You're in New York, right? I mean, that's where I know you work out of. So. That's
1: where I work out of, but I'm also actually a D.C. resident, so Nanny Helen Burrows is another one who's very uh, important to me.
0: And I know you taught at Howard.
1: I taught at Howard a little bit. I taught at University of Maryland. Now I'm at John Jay College, part of City University of New York. And I managed to weave in talking about black co-op history in almost every course that I teach. So I try to make sure I also see myself as a co-op educator, not just a teacher. Because, you know, just getting the word out, explaining, you know, how they work, best practices, successes as well as challenges is just it's important to keep that dialogue going and to make sure you know this is all about learning by doing as you said right and so keeping the dialogue going that's how we learn that's how we make progress and as I said in history that's how these co-ops you know even when one co-op folded or didn't do too well it didn't stop the whole movement because people would learn about even learn from those lessons and move on to bigger and better things or different things. Um, their children, some of them, sometimes. I mean, unfortunately, we didn't have as much of the legacy being passed on. But sometimes you did have, like with Freedom Quilting Bee, a lot of the the daughters took up, got involved in Freedom Quilting Bee as their mothers got older. So also some intergenerational level because of the teaching, because of the examples that get shared. And so I think it is really important to see ourselves as organizers and teachers because co-op development is really requires both, right? And so if yeah. you're already doing school, doing teaching, it's easy to add it. If you're not already doing it, we find that it was important you know, to start teaching to make sure that component of sharing the information, learning together. It also builds trust, right? Trust and solidarity, which are also so important to economic democracy. So there's, it's kind of cyclical, right? You can't even say chicken. It's not. It's a chicken. It's chicken or the egg kind of thing, right? You can't say you can't start a co-op without education because you can't. But you also can't keep a co-op successful without continuous education, which is, I guess, why we have that principle, because people early on recognized how important it was to learn together, to make sure we are continuing to learn, right? Because democracy, you know it is not stagnant.
0: Oh, as we've seen through the last. Uh presidential thing but we won't go there either you said months of study and what the research has shown me is sometimes it was years of study and sometimes it would take two three four five years to start a co-op and what your book said is that a lot of times those co-ops didn't fail like 80 percent of them did not fail in in the first five years Were the capitalistic model 80 percent failed or some numbers like that and that was because of this education. But continuous education is what you say. They study bees, they would always come back to them is what you said. Did I get that yeah. right?
1: Yes. And continuous education like, um, just forgot the name, but there was a co-op in Gary, Indiana during the Great Depression, cooperative trading company or something. Um, mm-hmm. I can't believe I forgot the name. I use them all the time as an example. But one of the things they did, they were one of the ones that took 18 months of of training and education. They started two night school adult education classes in cooperatives and cooperative management. But one of their co-founders, Jacob Reddick, writes in the article that he wrote up about it, is that it was the Women's Guild that continued from the original study group. So once they opened, some of the people kind of dropped out of the study group stuff. Cause they were opening and they were running the store right but the women's guild kept the studying going and he says if it wasn't for our initial education program and if it wasn't for that energy and motivation of the women's guild to keep us studying and learning the three co-ops that they started would not have lasted but they did a, a grocery store which became the largest black owned grocery store in the country for a while during the great depression a gas station a credit union and then a second branch of the grocery store And he says they wouldn't have had that five or six year progress if the Women's Guild
0: hadn't kept the knowledge, the training, the the information flowing. And, And we're going to take our second break and come back and talk about that. And eventually we're going to begin to talk about the future. We're talking about the past right now, but we're talking about the future. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. The program is Everything Cooperative. My name is Vernon Oaks, and I have the absolute pleasure of talking with Dr. Jessica gordon Nimhard. And we've been talking about and celebrating Women's History Month, but particularly black women in the cooperative movement, whether that started with mutual aid and go into cooperative education or cooperative businesses. But Dr. Nimhard, before we took break, we were talking about Gary, Indiana, and they had, it's always interesting to me, they start with a grocery store, have a gas store, and they end up with other businesses, and they create this ecosystem. And you've given us a couple examples of that, but education was the core. And so my question is in the context that any group of people that want to keep people down, if there's the plantation owners, they want to make sure you don't get educated and you can't vote. That seemed to be the two keys that they, and for women, it was keeping barefoot and pregnant, not educated, voting, not doing anything but taking care of kids and and uh, cooking, et cetera. And so Nanny Helen Burrows and Ella Jo Baker and all of these women said, we got to have education, we have to have voting, but we have to ha- also have to have economics. And co-ops, mutual aid co- and then co-ops are the way they're doing that. Can you give us other examples of? We talked about these ladies and different parts of the world, like Gary, Indiana. We talked about D.C., New York. You have any other examples of how this is playing out around the U.S. with black women?
1: Sure. And then the Gary, I just want to fix the name. Consumers Cooperative Trading Company was the name of that ecosystem in Gary, Indiana in the 1930s. So, sorry those Gary people oh. that I messed up, name it first. And they, they're the ones that had that strong women's guild that kept things going. So, yeah, I mean, one of my colleagues, a black economist, Nina Banks, actually has a great article out about the importance of women's community work, right? And that we, especially black women's community work, and that we always kind of see it as tangential and voluntary and, right? But she... Um, Writes persuasively that we really need to see it as work as labor that needs to be made more visible and more valuable because especially for black communities but probably for all communities all the things that women do to keep their families and communities healthy and together right matter and so really if you look in any of these communities right from the early the radical unions right in the 1880s the knights of labor Colored Farmers National Alliance and Cooperative Union, the, um, what were they called, the Cooperative Workers Unions. Those early radical unions, right, that were mixing populism with labor organizing, with co-op development, also recognized the power of women and the importance of women to the labor movement. So that was another place where women's organizing, women's power and the right for women to be seen equally as workers to men was so important in movements that also saw the importance of co-ops, right, to labor organizing. So there's that aspect, right? That's why, again, the Helena Wilson, as part of the Ladies Auxiliary to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, right, she saw their duty to support the sleeping car workers in making sure that those great wages they were now getting as, a union, as unionized porters and maids would also translate into great benefits to community. And the way to do that was through creating consumer cooperatives, credit unions, worker co-ops, et cetera, so that that money recirculated in communities and stayed in communities. We've got women, uh, there was a women's nursing worker co-op in North Carolina in the 80s. Unfortunately, I don't know a lot about it, but I know there's some other examples of right doing uh, clinics free free clinics and nursing like home care in a way that was more cooperative so that it was more helpful both to the workers and to the community we've got other sewing examples not just freedom quilting bee but worker co-op sort of taking over right uh, again in north carolina and then i think a couple got started in florida more recently but there in north carolina it was again in the 80s where most of the Sewing factories were moving to Mexico and other places, and these were two different examples where black women came together to buy the sewing factory because the employers were moving out of the country and they wanted to keep that work and make more dignified and better paying work, and they were able to do that through worker co-ops. So we've got lots of different examples in healthcare, in worker co-ops, in organizing and education right? Where we see again, women kind of at the forefront because of their roles as community leaders and people who have always kind of been responsible for what we call social reproduction and the life, you know, the well-being of families and communities. And so they naturally also often resonate to the co-op model as a way to enhance what they're already doing, uh, in communities and to, uh, institutionalize and make, you know, institutionalize better kinds of benefits better economic justice um, and economic democracy
0: so you told me the first time you were on the show and uh, that when you started doing your research people told you that blacks don't do co-ops and there was very little information about it and that co-ops was a white hippie tofu eating environment and economy (laughs) why do you think that that knowledge wasn't available in it because it's such a rich, 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 rich history. Why do you think it wasn't yeah. available? You
1: know, I think there's a bunch of reasons. Since we're talking about women's history and black women and stuff, one of the very first reasons is how disrespected and undervalued uh, women are and women's work is, and right? So a lot of this stuff was headed by women, started, supported by women, and often um, it was devalued because of that. Often it started out more informal, and so some of the informal aspects don't get remembered or memorialized as much, especially, again, if it's it's women being involved. So I think there is an issue about patriarchy, right, that we don't value and we don't talk about these things as much. But there's also some other really important things that were happening in history with black co-ops. A lot of the black co-ops suffered sabotage in a variety of ways, you know, Some of it was about banks, white banks, colluding not to help with financing. Some of it was things like insurance companies upping the insurance or landlords upping the rent so that the co-ops couldn't afford to stay in business. But some of it was like out and out white supremacist terrorism, right, targeting and lynching some of the leaders burning down the buildings, um, or, you know, new communities talk about how their water was poisoned, that people put, you know, infected their water to try to stop them. So there were lots of ways that, you know, racial capitalism and white supremacy and white competitors didn't want blacks to survive, right? They didn't want blacks to survive without them, right? So if you started a co-op grocery store and stopped patronizing the white grocery store, they lost business. So then they tried everything they could to discredit, right, to say the food was inferior or the produce was inferior and this and that, right, to discredit it. They would undersell so that everyone would go back to buying from the white store and that kind of thing. So there was lots of sabotage that also made people stop talking about it. A lot of this co-op activity went under the radar so that they could stay in, in business. Or they didn't even name themselves a co-op so that they could stay in business. You know, because then the third issue is the ideology of capitalism, right, which says that co-ops are socialist and communists, and especially with red-baiting by the 1950s. But there was red-baiting even before the 1950s, especially for blacks. People didn't want blacks to do social economics, didn't, right, and so... All these ways that we, we weren't taught how to do it. We weren't encouraged to do it. We were actually discouraged to do it. We were made examples, meant that a lot of the activity went underground, went unnamed. And so even when families were participating in co-ops, they didn't sit at the home table, at the dinner table, and talk about the co-op. They might talk about the store or the group or the activity, but they didn't name it a co-op. So then when I come along saying, oh, co-ops, 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 the only time that they would heard co-op was the food co-op, the hippie food co-op, that, right? But their families didn't necessarily call what they were doing co-op, even though they were doing it. Um, and so I think there's all that's caught up, right, between the red-baiting, the, the lack of valuing, between the, how dangerous it was to be involved, right? That's why I called my book Collective Courage, because it really took courage to participate in these things, especially when the white society didn't want you to succeed. And so then, so the stories were either that it wasn't a co-op because they were trying to keep the the, the pressure off that, or the story was that you, the co-op failed because often with this sabotage they did fail. But the reasons why they failed didn't come with the knowledge of failure, and so all they was, oh, we tried that, it doesn't work, we don't know how to do that kind of thing. So sorry, I wasn't very coherent, but there are about four no. reasons in there.
0: No, I, I got it. It is, it is wonderful. I'm glad I asked you that question. And Collective Courage, the name of the book, is we have to come together collectively and, and fight off all of these particular problems, whether that's racism or slavery or somebody poisoning your water, wh- whatever it is that they're doing. And then in Tulsa, it was so phenomenally successful that whites couldn't handle it. And I understood, and, but you being an economist, and I didn't understand this when I took this in school, that this money changing in the community, this multiplier effect, one person told me, and I have no way of proving this, but money transferred in Tulsa 32 times. Wow. Yeah. In most communities, black communities, is one or two times. It comes in and goes out. Okay. Yeah. And, and, it, and that's it. And it goes back into the white community. So, yeah, that's what the co-op world does. It keeps the money turning inside the community, which just creates wealth, creates wealth, creates wealth. Okay. Yep. And this ecosystem yep, that, re- that we have to
1: build. The recirculating, right, using non-traditional resources and unappreciated resources and then recirculating all the issues, all the resources, all the money, right, that's what co-ops do. That's one of the powers of it, right? That, we, you know, the cooperation among co-ops, that co-ops buy from each other, buy locally, co-ops hire local people, all that helps to recirculate the money, right? And then when you have these ecosystems where you can also have a co-op grocery store, a co-op gas station, worker co-ops, credit unions, housing co-ops, right? The money really just stays in the community, gets used in the community, and that's that's some of the power and the
0: beauty of it. Phenomenal. I'm glad you wrote your book, did your research, uh, got bit by this co-op. Now, did you get any in your studies, in your Ph.D., or did you know about co-ops as you were studying? Because I didn't get anything.
1: No, no. I'm all, I'm self-taught in this. Um, I didn't even really learn community economics in grad school. I did political economy. I did uh, international development, I did macroeconomic policy, I did finance policy, but I never was taught about cooperatives or community economic development.
0: Okay, so we we talked a lot about the history. I want to talk a little bit about what's going on now in the U.S. and in this last segment talk a bit about the future coming out of COVID, hopefully coming out of COVID now, and what are some of the things that co-ops can do and that you see is happening now that would take us into the future i absolutely love talking to you dr Nimhardt. i learn so much every time we'll be right back and i also want to talk about how to use co-op with returning citizens so we could talk another hour with those three subjects we'll be right back please don't touch that dial your news talk station Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We've been on the air for eight and a half years talking about co-ops. And the National Cooperative Bank has been our supporter, uh, both financially and just a wonderful friend, encouraging us and helping us to understand this cooperative world and different people in it. Our guest today is Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart. And we've been talking about the past. And so, Dr. Nimhart, I would like for you to talk about Unsung Heroes and the whole program with Corporate Development Fund.
1: Yeah, so my friend and colleague Margaret Lund actually came up with the idea that wouldn't it be good if the Hall of Fame was able to also, the Co-op Hall of Fame was also able to recognize unsung heroes from before the Co-op Hall of Fame started and from our history and from marginalized groups who weren't recognized for their co-op activity. So we made a presentation, a a proposal to uh, the Cooperative Development Fund. Uh, Their board accepted it and launched for 2022 for this year. There is a new category in the Coop Hall of Fame for Unsung Heroes. And so we're in the middle of actually putting in some applications for who we think would make good unsung heroes. So I'm not going to... I'm not going to tell you who were, who were putting in for the applications, but I will say that this first round, it looks like it's three black women from history.
0: Fantastic.
1: Um, who, who were the first three black women we're putting up. But that's not to say that the unsung hero category is only for black women. It's for any unsung person, especially, you know, before whenever it was the 70s when um, the Co-op Hall of Fame started. And it's to make sure that marginalized people in co-op movements or in the co-op movement in the U.S. get a little bit more attention. Um, If you look at the numbers, unfortunately, right, there's very few women at all who have won uh, the Co-op Hall of Fame. Um, I'm happy to be one of those categories. And I think I'm only one of, what, three black women? I think there might be two other black women, two or three other black women in the categories. I think there's only one Latinx person, so there's not many, right, and I don't think there's any Native Americans yet. So anyway, looking at those data, trying to figure out, uh, especially from the past, how to find some unsung heroes. The other fabulous thing, uh, we're piloting it this year, but it should be in place from now on, is there's also some money. CDF is able to use some money to help people do the research because one of the other reasons about why people are unsung is because there's so little documentation even for the first three piloted applications that we're working on right now, it's very hard to get documentation. Um, And especially with COVID, it's hard to even go to the libraries that have some of the letters and certificates that we want copies of to get them. But the idea is that if there's some money to help some young uh, researchers of color to actually find out more about the people that we're thinking should be nominated to help put together the packages for the applications, but that would also help to do more co-op education, more co-op research, train young researchers, that kind of thing. So all that is in this new initiative to have an unsung hero slot in the Cooperative Hall of Fame. And I guess it's October 2022. You will see what, what's happened with our labor on that.
0: Okay. So I know you have been inducted into the Co-op Hall of Fame. Shirley Sherrard is another African-American lady who's been inducted and. In- Two of my heroines, and Carmen. Wait, what is Carmen's name out of New mm-hmm. York? The attorney, Latino.
1: Carmen Huertas Noble. Yes. Carmen Huertas Nobles. Yes, that's right. She just got in last year, right?
0: Yes. So those are three ladies, but I I would hope because uh, I have some.
1: And who about Malva Smith? Was she did melba
0: Smith? melba, melba Smith. Yes, she she's been inducted man, I wasn't
1: phone. sure if Witherspoon was in there before she died. Can't remember sure. that yeah. yeah,
0: anyway, so I would like to think that some of the ladies you talked about today be in your list of three, four. I'm not asking you that, okay, <laughs> not asking <laughs> I okay.
1: Field. I field. Stay tuned,
0: okay, <laughs> I will stay tuned. I have been on that selection committee probably nine of the last 12 years, and uh, it's very hush-hush until uh, NCBA and CDF Co-op, it's all approved, and then they announce who is, who is was for that year. So, yes, let's hush-hush and keep it that way. Uh, but I would like to give a shout-out to CDF. Uh, you can go to CDF.coop to donate monies, and they're collecting monies now for co-ops in Ukraine. So – if you have some extra cash, you can put in monies. They're also collecting monies to celebrate the life and legacy of Chuck Snyder, who I considered a friend. I called a friend. So they are doing a lot, a lot of good stuff. They gave money to Uganda when there was a major bus crash. that killed cooperators. They were coming back from a meeting. Okay, so let's talk now about the future. Coming out of COVID, how do you see co-ops and women in co-ops, in particular, helping us to have a create a better life for African Americans and women, girl ch- children? Yes.
1: Well, you know, one of the interesting facts the, um, that's coming out of some data that the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives and its research arm, Democracy at Work Institute. Uh, is that the fastest growing worker co-ops in the United States are women owned, especially women of color owned, and especially Latina owned. So we know that, you know, even before COVID, the the worker co-op movement was growing because of the activity, the activism, and the organizing of women of color into worker co-ops. And, you know, we've talked about all the benefits of being in a worker co-op, especially for women. And so you could understand why it would be something that women, uh, immigrant women and other women of color have, have have resonated to. And so, you know, I think that's going to continue, right? We know during COVID pandemic that mutual aid in general has continued again, especially often led by women and women of color. There's lots more mutual aid activities going on. But we also can see that, right, coming out of this, right, especially with, I don't know what we would call it, right? The the challenges, right, of uh, first responders, right? We're also recognizing that people of color and women have been most of the people on the front lines, even in COVID, right? So they've been the ones that mm-hmm. have had to work, haven't had the luxury to work at home, right? They're also starting to say, right, if we're going to be on the front lines, if we're going to be the ones taking all the risks, then we need better working conditions. We need better... And more
0: and more money. <laughs>
1: Right? More money, better working conditions, more control over our work. Well, that's what a worker co-op does, right? It gives you more control over your work. It allows you to pay yourself a living wage. It eliminates, you know, huge wage disparities. It eliminates middlemen in some places. It it helps women to have opportunities, even job ladder opportunities within a co-op. Most of the worker co-ops provide that too. And so the more and more I hear people, you know, saying that job isn't worth it. You know, I've, I'm, I should just stay home and take care of my children rather than risk my life and for poor pay and poverty wages or whatever, worker costs are the answer to all that. So for me, I see a future where more and more people are going to recognize how important economic cooperation, economic cooperatives, worker cooperatives are to making the kind of world we want to be able to respond in the way to all these different crises in ways that we need to, but in ways that provide dignified work, living wages work that people can really be proud of and can really be supportive of them as members of families and members of communities. So for me, that the future is especially worker co-ops. That, that is our future. Uh, I think credit unions also are one of the fastest growing and actually black food co-ops are some of the fastest growing in the co-op movement. And again, I think it's because right people who have normally been exploited and marginalized are realizing they can take things into their own hands and collectively solve some of their problems and are doing it
0: so some of the favorite sayings around our house was we can't make ends meet we have more month than money and there's frustration and so forth start a co-op join a co-op work in a co-op that's what i'm hearing you say in this where would somebody go to get information about let's say worker co-ops
1: well, U.S. Federation of Worker Co-op, sorry, usworker.co-op is their website, usworker.co-op. Um, we also have a, a, a place called uh, ed.co-op, just ed.co-op, which is an education hub where you can, like, enter, and then if you have questions how to start a co-op or what's a credit union or all that kind of stuff, it directs you to websites and information that will give you more of that information. Uh, the U- uh, the uh, University of Wisconsin Center for Cooperatives has a lot of research, a lot of good information on their website, which I can never remember what it is, but it might be wisconsin.edu slash
0: whatever the... Oh, uh, um, well, just uh, yeah. Google Cooperative Center of Center University of Wisconsin. Of, yeah. Right. Center for Cooperatives oh. University of Wisconsin. We, so, have, yeah, to we have
1: to leave. Log- a lot of information on the web. It's not, and the USDA even has stuff about how to start a co op. So it's not hard to find the information. And it's not and hard to, to get a group of people to start talking about it.
0: You can go to cdf.coop or ncba.coop. Thank you, Dr. Jessica Gordon Nimhardt. Thank you so very much uh, for honoring us with all of your knowledge. Everybody out there, Please live cooperatively and go to ed.coop to figure out and ask questions about how to start one. We'll see you next week.